What is going on, true crime fans? I'm your host, Heath. And I'm your other host, Daphne. And you're listening to Going West. Before we get into today's case, of course, we want to start with some five-star reviews we got this week on Apple Podcasts. So first and foremost, thank you so much to our good friend, Hub, from Orange County, California. Your review was really nice. He's one of our super good friends, and he is the most amazing magician. You all have to go check him out on Instagram, at HubDubRub. Yes, thank you so much, Hub. We really appreciate the review and can't wait to see more of your magic. And a big thanks to Amy from Indianapolis, Indiana. And Nick, we're not sure where you're from, but you left us an amazing review, so thank you for that. And thank you to Roe from Danville, California, and Kelly from Fort Collins, Colorado. And then we've got a review from Michelle from South Carolina and Kendra from Montana. Thank you to Terry from Australia and Barb from Franklin, Massachusetts. And a big thanks to Anna from Houston, Texas, and Jordan, as well as your mom, for listening to us in Springfield, Oregon. Thanks so much to Rachel from Lakeland, Florida, and Verlaine from Utah. And then we have Kaylin from Burlington, North Carolina, and Courtney from Tulsa, Oklahoma. Last but not least, thank you to Taylor and your coworkers from Boise, Idaho, Nicole from Cleveland, Ohio, and then Aaron. Thank you so much for your review. We're not sure where you're from, but you left us a really nice review, so thank you. And of course, we want to highlight our newest patrons over on Patreon, Cena, Liz, and Shelly. Thank you so much for subscribing. We really appreciate your donation. It really helps this show keep going, so thank you. If you guys want to become part of the Going West gang, head over to patreon.com slash goingwestpodcast. You get bonus episodes monthly, and it just comes along with a $5 monthly donation. And if you guys want a shout out on the show, please head over to Apple Podcasts, leave us a five-star review, but don't forget to leave your name and your location. We had some really great reviews this week. Some of them didn't have a name or a location, so we couldn't really figure out how to give you guys a shout out, but we appreciate the review anyways. All right, guys, this is episode 40 of Going West, so let's get into it. got a very different kind of sponsor for this episode, The Jordan Harbinger Show, a podcast you should definitely check out since you're a fan of high-quality, fascinating podcasts hosted by interesting people. The Jordan Harbinger Show covers such a wide range of topics through weekly interviews with heavy-hitting guests. And there are a ton of episodes that you're going to find interesting. Jordan is super charismatic and well-voiced, so I loved listening to his recent episode with Susan Casey called Unraveling Mysteries in the Ocean's Darkest Depths. It was so creepy and interesting, and he goes across every category with other episodes like Romance Twister, My Mister Once Dated My Sister, or his monthly Skeptical Sunday episodes about controversial topics from crystal healing to cannabis to Ouija boards. There is something for everyone. We really enjoy this show, and we think you will as well. There's just so much here. Check out jordanharbinger.com slash start for some episode recommendations or search for The Jordan Harbinger Show. That's H-A-R-B as in boy, I-N as in Nancy, G-E-R on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Introducing Bluehost Cloud, ultra-fast WordPress hosting with 100% uptime. Want a website with unmatched power, speed, and control? Of course you do. And now you can have all three with Bluehost Cloud. 
the new web hosting plan from Bluehost. With 100% uptime and incredibly speedy load times, your WordPress websites will be dependable and lightning fast on a global scale. Plus, your sites can handle even the biggest traffic spikes without going down or lagging. And with Bluehost Cloud, you get 24-7 WordPress priority support, meaning you're connected to WordPress experts anytime you need them. Not to mention, you automatically get daily backups and world-class security. So, what are you waiting for? Get Bluehost Cloud today by visiting bluehost.com. That's bluehost.com. On Friday, June the 6th, 2009, 10-year-old Lindsay Baum disappeared after leaving a friend's house. Something happened to Lindsay during her three-block walk back to her home in the small town of McCleary in Grays Harbor County. You realize you saw your daughter walk out your door just a few minutes ago and you don't know when or if you'll ever see her again. It's just kind of an earth-shattering moment. FBI agents and detectives scoured the area for any shred of a clue for more than a year and they found nothing. I'm here today to share with you that we've brought Lindsay home. We've recovered her. Lindsay Jo Baum was born in Tennessee on July 7, 1998, to parents Scott and Melissa, and she was the younger sister to Josh. Lindsay was always passionate about writing, and she even dreamed of becoming a published author, and more specifically, she wanted to publish enough books to fill up her house's bookshelf. She loved writing so much that she would write on anything near her when a story idea struck, for example, on a napkin at a restaurant. She was definitely a mama's girl and was known to be incredibly talkative and very friendly kid who had many friends. In the summer of 2009, Lindsay's parents, Melissa and Scott, divorced and Melissa wanted a fresh start for herself and their two children. But since Scott was a part of the Tennessee National Guard, he decided to remain in the state of Tennessee while Melissa moved the kids to the Pacific Northwest. Melissa decided on McCleary, Washington, which is a small logging town somewhat near the central coast with a population of just 1,600. Since Lindsay was so social, she made friends in her new home pretty easily. Friday, June 26, 2009 was a hot day in the Pacific Northwest. Lindsay spent the afternoon at her friend's house where they swam in the pool and talked about their upcoming school year. Lindsay had just graduated from elementary school, which in the United States is the fifth grade, and was about to begin her first year of middle school. At this time, Lindsay was 10 years old and just about two weeks shy of her 11th birthday, which again was July 7th. After swimming all afternoon, Lindsay stopped at home, and then she, her brother Josh, and a group of friends went to another friend's house. Lindsay wanted to sleep over at this friend's house, but the friend's mom asked if she could just do it another night instead. Before the evening end, Lindsay and Josh had gotten into an argument about a bike, so he walked home early by himself. At around 9.15 p.m., Lindsay was ready to go home, so she left her friend's house to venture on the simple 10-minute, or 5-block, stroll back to her house. Her mom was expecting her home, so as the evening went on and Lindsay hadn't walked through the front door, Melissa knew something had happened to her daughter. She went to the phone and called the mother of the friend's house Lindsay had just been at, 
but she told Melissa that Lindsay had left over an hour ago. Then Melissa tried to call Lindsay's cell phone, only to discover it was left in her bedroom on the charger. Lindsay had just recently gotten that cell phone, so she probably just wasn't used to carrying it around with her. Melissa really began to worry at this point, since it was already dark. The summer sun had set about 20 minutes before Lindsay left her friend's house to begin walking, so we're not sure if Lindsay was used to walking at night and why Melissa didn't pick her up that evening, especially since Lindsay was afraid of the dark. But since it was just a 10-minute walk through the neighborhood, it's possible they just didn't suspect there would be any trouble in her walking home. At 10.45 p.m., Melissa dialed 911 and the police showed up at her house to take a report of what happened. Naturally, police assumed that maybe she went to another friend's house without telling her mom and she was probably somewhere safe in the neighborhood, but Melissa assured them that she wouldn't do anything like that and she certainly wouldn't run off alone. The next day came and police started to believe that this was not a runaway case. None of Lindsay's friends knew where she was and she still hadn't returned home by the following afternoon. Police inspected the bomb's home and determined that there wasn't any evidence to support that she left on her own free will because she didn't have any of her belongings with her. And the next afternoon, Sunday, June 28th, agents from the FBI office in Seattle, Washington, came to the town of McCleary. They assisted hundreds of police officers and searchers to help find this missing 10-year-old girl. There were people on the ground, in the air, and on water searching frivolously for her, including the use of search dogs throughout town but no one could find any trace of Lindsay. When Lindsay went missing, she was 4 feet 9 inches, or 145 centimeters tall, and 90 pounds, or 41 kilos. She had brown eyes and light brown hair down to her shoulders. She was last seen wearing a light blue hooded pullover with denim blue jeans and black slip-on shoes. A neighbor remembered seeing Lindsay walking on Maple Street between 5th and 6th Street, which is in front of the Beehive Retirement Center, that evening, but this witness was the only one to have seen her walking that night, and apparently she walked the same route pretty often while on her way home from her friend's house. In those first couple days, Melissa drove around the area aimlessly looking for Lindsay, but she, along with other searchers, didn't see a thing. By this time, the whole town of McCleary knew Lindsay's face. Before Lindsay disappeared, there were a few very suspicious incidents that occurred. About two weeks prior, Lindsay went to her mother, Melissa, and told her that she thought she was being followed. In one incident, she was with her friend in a public restroom when a man walked in on them. Another, both Lindsay and her friend thought a white car was following them. The day before she went missing, she told her mom that she had a really big feeling that something bad was going to happen. Her mom asked her what she meant, and Lindsay responded, I don't know, I just have a feeling, which is incredibly eerie considering what would happen to her just the next day. On May 29th, which was just a few weeks earlier, she had written in her journal, I've been getting a lot of nightmares lately, and I have this bad feeling that something bad's going to happen. The mood she listed on the page was scared. After police discovered that a white car had apparently been following Lindsay, they got a bit of a better description of the car from her friend who was there that day. After doing lots of searching, they took surveillance from a local gas station where they found a white car that matched the description they were given. Unfortunately, they weren't able to find who was driving this car, and since it wasn't a very specific description, it was pretty much impossible for them to find the abductor solely based on the car. A week after Lindsay went missing, her father Scott flew into Washington from Tennessee to be with the family in their efforts to search for her. 
But after just a couple weeks, he had to return to Tennessee to attend to personal issues and also figure out if he was going to be deployed to Iraq since he was a part of the Tennessee National Guard. He was trying to get them to let him stay in the country so he could continue searching for his daughter. It's unknown to us if Scott and Melissa's divorce was amicable, but Scott was never a suspect in his daughter's disappearance. But the police did have many suspects. More than 40 people were questioned for the abduction of Lindsay Baum, and all persons of interest were given polygraph tests. There were 20 search warrants issued throughout this case, but unfortunately, no one witnessed Lindsay's actual abduction, making this an incredibly difficult case to solve because there were so many possibilities. At one point, someone in California spotted a young girl that looked a lot like Lindsay at a rest stop with an older man, but when police checked it out, they found out that it was not Lindsay, but just a girl who looked very similar to her. On July 29, 2009, so about a month after Lindsay disappeared, someone in the community reached out to detectives to tell them that he was suspicious of a man named Dale. Dale was 23 years old and worked at the Beehive Retirement Center, which is where Lindsay was last seen. Since a witness had seen her outside the Beehive Retirement Center that night, investigators paid one visit there to question numerous employees. But they weren't able to interview all of them, and Dale was one of the initial employees that wasn't working the night that Lindsay disappeared and was therefore not interviewed. Dale was also off work the following day, June 27th. Something that immediately interested detectives was the fact that Dale drove a white 1995 Honda Del Sol. The exhaust on his car was very loud, so it was obvious when he was around. And we're not going to mention Dale's last name, but we want it to be known that if you are interested in finding out who Dale is, you can find his information with a quick Google search. The caller told police that Dale drove his car around multiple times a day, but in the weeks after Lindsay disappeared, he wasn't driving around nearly at all, which was pretty suspicious to the man. But he wasn't the only one to notice this. Another person came forward saying the same thing about Dale's lack of driving. This second person said that he noticed a small white car with a loud exhaust on Maple Street around 10 p.m. on June 26, 2009, which is the night that Lindsay went missing. He didn't think anything of it because at the time, no one in the town knew anything bad had happened, so he didn't take note of the driver, but he did assume at the time that it was Dale. When investigators heard all of this, they called his home, but his mother, Tina, answered the phone. She said that Dale was still sleeping, so the investigators told her to have him call them when he woke up. 30 minutes later, Tina called them back and said that Dale had just left the house in his car. When he woke up that morning, she told him that the investigators wanted to talk to him about being at work on June 26th, and he told his mom that he didn't have anything to tell them since he wasn't working at the retirement center that night. Then he left. Tina gave police Dale's cell phone number and they called him. Dale answered the call and told them exactly what he told his mom, that he wasn't working that night. When investigators asked him where he was that night, he told them he was working his second job, which was at a youth camp in Olympia, Washington. And Olympia is about 20 miles or 32 kilometers east of McCleary, by the way. So, of course, investigators contacted the youth camp and spoke to Dale's supervisor. And she said that Dale was not working on the night of June 26, 2009. 
If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you are allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medications that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, just visit Juvederm.com. If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural-looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volix XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural-looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment, no maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth sculpted look with Juvederm Volix XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. We know you guys love a good mystery, especially one with twists and turns. Am I right? This is why you guys are going to love June's journey. Step into the role of June Parker while she tries to uncover the mystery of her sister's murder in the roaring 1920s. In this hidden object mystery game, put your detective skills to the test. While you're on this quest to uncover a scandalous hidden family secret, you can customize your very own luxurious estate island and let your imagination run wild. Daphne and I actually love to play this game together because you can chat with and play with or against other players by joining a detective club. You'll even get the chance to play in a detective league to put your skills to the test. It is truly so much fun. You guys are going to love it. So what do you think? Can you crack the case? Download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android. I know all of you guys love listening to thrilling stories, so why not check out some thriller audiobooks on Audible? That is all I've been doing lately when I'm cooking, cleaning, or driving. Because Audible includes an incredible selection of audiobooks across every genre. And they have thousands of podcasts from popular favorites like ours that you guys can listen to. As an Audible member, you can choose one title a month to keep from their entire catalog, including the latest bestsellers and new releases. 
And on top of that, new members can try Audible free for 30 days. With Audible, the time is now more than ever to embrace the breathtaking, sinister, and shocking tales that have enthralled you, especially with brand new exclusive thrillers from best-selling authors who are guaranteed to keep you gripped. And I am very much gripped in the audiobook that I'm listening to now on Audible of The Drowning Woman. It is so good. New members can try Audible free for 30 days. Visit audible.com slash going west or text going west to 500 500. That's audible.com slash going west or text going west to 500 500. Hey gang, we have a great wine for you guys to try this fall. It's called Vampire. They have an incredible selection of reds and whites and they just introduced a new addition to their line, Dracula Sparkling Rosé. They have really delicious wines, and one of my favorites is Fangria, which is actually a bottled sangria, and I used to work for this brand, so I can tell you honestly that it's one of my favorite wine brands, and it's the perfect thing to try this year for your Halloween party, or just drink it while you have a night in this fall. Get 10% off your order using promo code GOINGWEST, no spaces, at checkout. Not only do they sell wine, but they sell vampire capes that fit onto your wine bottle, so it's super cute and festive delicious olive oil and vinegar, and even coffee. Visit vampire.com and use promo code GOINGWEST at checkout. Again, that's vampire.com using promo code GOINGWEST at checkout. So when we left off, investigators had questioned Dale regarding his whereabouts the night Lindsay went missing, and he told them that he was not working at the Beehive Retirement Facility, but instead he was working at his second job, which was a youth camp. But when investigators called and spoke to his supervisor, she told them that Dale wasn't working that night either, meaning Dale was lying to police. Police asked the supervisor if she was sure that Dale wasn't working that night, and she said that she was positive because they suspended him from work for two weeks due to him misbehaving and being disruptive at work. And apparently, numerous co-workers of Dale's had reported him to the supervisor because of his actions. And this wasn't the first time that he had misbehaved at work. What's interesting to me is that he knew right away what he was doing that night, and this is a whole month later. Most people would say, well, that was a while ago, I don't remember. Unless the date had stood out to him since Lindsay's disappearance was such a big deal in town. But it's also really suspicious that he confidently stated that he was working at the youth camp that night when he actually wasn't, especially since he had been suspended. So he would know that he wasn't working. So it just makes you wonder why he lied. Yeah, if he had been suspended for weeks from this youth camp job, then he knew for a fact that he was not working that night. So why would you tell investigators that you were when you positively knew that you weren't? Well, when the investigators asked Dale about this, he confirmed that he was indeed still suspended on June 26th and that he had been from June 7th to June 27th. So lucky for him, those dates were very close together. So he said he had just gotten them mixed up since it was around the same time. A few days later, on July 31st, Melissa Baum told police that she was being followed by a white car. When police found her, they saw that it was Dale in the white car behind her. When they asked him why he was following her, he stated that he was at work at the Beehive Retirement Center when he saw Melissa's car passing and he thought it was suspicious. 
so he got in his car to follow her, thinking the car could be involved in Lindsay's disappearance, but he didn't call police to report it like Melissa had. And this is about the dumbest shit I ever heard. He's trying to come off as a good citizen, saying that he followed the car that looked suspicious that was driven by a woman, and not just any woman, but the mother of a missing child. And this makes absolutely no sense. For whatever reason, he was following her, and this was the first thing that came out of his mouth. And why in the first place, when investigators were trying to get a hold of him, would he tell them, oh, well, I don't have any information to give you, I wasn't working that night, and then all of a sudden be this good Samaritan and say, oh, I followed this car because it could have been pertaining to Lindsay's case. And why would it even be connected? His excuse was that it was driving outside of the street where she went missing, but so were so many other cars that day and every other day of the week. Right, so he picked out this one specific car that drove past the beehive? That just doesn't make any sense to me. And of course it happened to be Melissa, who is Lindsay's mother. I mean, I think that he was trying to follow her. That's the only thing that makes sense. Especially since we know that Lindsay had been followed by a white car, and now Melissa is being followed by a white car. So what are the odds of that happening? Yeah, I mean, that's very suspicious to me. Investigators went back to the Beehive to interview a few of Dale's co-workers, and one of them said that on two separate evenings towards the end of July, she said a silver Honda Del Sol was driving on Maple Street by Beehive, and Dale told her that he thought that they wanted to steal parts from his Honda Del Sol. The car hadn't been lurking around his car, it was just driving past, so this is a pretty wild assumption. The next night, Dale follows the car, and it ended up being Melissa Bombs. So according to this co-worker of his, he wasn't following the car because he was suspicious that it had something to do with Lindsay's disappearance, since there was absolutely no good reason he would be thinking that, but he was really following it because he was thinking that they were going to steal parts from his car, which also makes no sense. And if he thought that they were going to steal parts from his car, why would he be following them? Like, what would that even do in this situation? You're not just going to stop the car and say, hey, I think you're trying to steal parts from me. Like, what are you going to do, really? So at this point, it just sounds like he's making up a bunch of stories. And I agree with you. That doesn't make any sense, especially because Melissa slash her car wasn't lurking around his car. So it just sounds like he's telling all these people different things to cover his own ass. To make things even crazier, police decided to do a background check on Dale to see if they could dig up any dirt on him. And they discovered that in 2000, so when he was 14 years old, he was suspected of raping a child. And the child had been 12 years old, so not too far away from his own age, but still a horrific crime nonetheless. So what happened was, one night, Dale was babysitting this girl and her two younger brothers. During the night, he had been watching porn and had the girl and her brothers watch with him. Dale then asked the girl to have sex with him and she said no. On another day, she was at his house and in his room for whatever reason, and he blocked the door off with a dresser and tried to have sex with her. And this went on for two hours apparently until she was able to fight him off, and she told police that they did not have sex, but that he tried. Police obtained Dale's cell phone records for the night of Lindsay's disappearance along with records for the weeks prior and the weeks following. On the night of June 26, 2009, Dale had been using his phone constantly until 9.26 p.m., and remember, Lindsay disappeared around 9.30 p.m. He didn't use it again until he took a two-minute phone call at 1.11 a.m. Then he didn't use it again until 6.12 a.m. Police noticed that he usually used his phone consistently until midnight or 1 a.m. every day. 
so this four-hour gap struck them as very odd behavior for Dale. They found that the call that he took at 1.11 a.m. was from a girl named Stephanie, who is someone he went to high school with. She had moved to Michigan years prior and moved back to Washington in May 2009. So weirdly enough, on June 26th, she had given Dale her phone number and they had been talking and texting throughout the whole day. She said they stopped talking at around 9.30 p.m. and then continued hours later because Dale said that he had to go to work at 10 p.m., which we know is not true. Within the weeks of Lindsay's disappearance, Dale had told Stephanie that he couldn't believe a girl from their town had been abducted and dismembered. Mind you, at this point, she was just missing. They had not found her body and didn't even know if she was dead or alive. So why did he say she was dismembered? Stephanie also mentioned that he had been obsessively talking about Lindsay's case nonstop. There was no physical evidence to connect Dale to the abduction of Lindsay Baum, so they had to drop him, and he was not considered an official suspect because lack of evidence. They definitely had their strong suspicions, but there wasn't anything substantial enough to be able to label him an official person of interest. So years passed and Melissa maintained hope that Lindsay was still alive. Josh, Lindsay's brother, didn't speak about Lindsay much and moved to Tennessee to be with his dad for a few years before returning to Washington. Melissa received a lot of support from her community and even other families in the Pacific Northwest whose children went missing as well, including the dad of Kyron Horman, which was a seven-year-old boy who went missing the year after Lindsay but in Portland, Oregon. If you're interested in hearing more about Kyron's case, we covered it in episode 28. In 2011, so about two years after she went missing, a local businessman named Tim became a prime suspect in Lindsay's case. He was a 51-year-old EMT, and he and his wife owned a jewelry repair shop in McCleary. And more specifically, the shop is located on 4th and Maple Street, which is a shop that Lindsay would have walked past on her way home that night. And since she had taken this route before, he could have seen her walk by on occasion. So police initially interviewed all of the business owners in the area back in 2009, but it took some time to find that Tim's statements were suspicious because in 2011, they reviewed more surveillance footage of the area. Tim initially stated that he was out of town doing a training and then was out on an ambulance call as a voluntary emergency medical technician the night Lindsay disappeared. And the training class was in Belfair, Washington, which was about an hour away, and he said it ended at 9 p.m. But on the night of June 26, 2009, Tim is caught on surveillance footage around 9.10 p.m. buying a bag of chips and a soda from a local convenience store. So this video puts Tim in the area around the time Lindsay went missing. When he was questioned again in 2012, he said that he forgot that he had been at the Mart and gotten back so early and that he had nothing to do with the abduction. Police determined that the training class ended at 8.15 p.m. Since he was in the area that night, he actually saw Melissa out looking for Lindsay and he even helped in the search for her. Tim stated that Chief George Crum of the McCleary Police Department personally asked him to join the search party, but Chief Crum doesn't remember doing this at all. So this is initially suspicious since we know that killers often insert themselves into investigations that they're involved in. But some also argue that since he was an emergency services volunteer, that he was just being neighborly and helpful. Regardless, police searched his home, car, and jewelry shop, and they seized over 100 items, including a rope and handwritten notes about Lindsay Baum. 
but unfortunately, it was never reported what the notes said and why they existed. Tim was given a polygraph and he failed it. He was then given another, but the results came back as inconclusive. Tim was never considered an official suspect, but is still considered a person of interest. I saw a reply on a Reddit thread where a guy commented that he was a few years older than Lindsay and he lived in McCleary. He said that most of the people in town believe that Tim did it, as he was apparently a very strange guy, but it's definitely possible he was just a normal guy living in the community and had nothing to do with Lindsay's disappearance. And unfortunately, we just don't know which is true. Police continued to look tirelessly for any evidence, and they pretty much turned McCleary upside down. They didn't leave a single stone unturned, and they talked to nearly every person in the town. It was just mind-blowing to everyone because somehow, in this little town, no one saw this girl being taken. This case was so high-profile that a photo of Lindsay appeared on the cover of People magazine a few months after she disappeared. Yet no one knew what happened to her. In 2013, so four years after her disappearance, they created an age progression photo of Lindsay, who would have been 15 years old. In 2017, three brothers in Shelton, Washington, which neighbors the town of McCleary, were arrested for possessing child pornography. One of their nieces had gone to clean up the house since Charles Emery was staying in a home due to his dementia. This niece had been made power of attorney and had found hordes of child porn and other images including people being murdered. This niece also states that she was molested by Charles and one of his brothers when she was a child. Along with the child porn, she found books relating to child homicide and child sexual assault, children's used underwear, and countless pairs of children's shoes. And she recognized the shoes as the same kind that they made her wear when they molested her. In one of the shoes, it said, her name's first half ounce of liquor came from this bottle. So these guys were obviously incredibly sick. And at this point, all the brothers were in their late 70s and early 80s, so who knows how long they had been getting away with this kind of abuse. Heath and I are major sufferers of seasonal allergies. They are the worst. It can even be difficult to host this show when our noses are all clogged up. We have tried brand after brand, but luckily, for those of us who live with symptoms of allergies, we can live Claritin Clear with Claritin D. And big shout out to Claritin for supporting this show and providing us with samples. Designed for serious allergy sufferers, Claritin D has two powerful ingredients in just one pill that relieve your allergy symptoms and decongest your nose so that you can breathe better. I feel like I sneeze all day long. I always have an itchy face, but now I can actually go outside in the grass and not have a sneeze attack or be stuffed up thanks to Claritin D. Are you ready to live as if you don't have allergies? It's time to live Claritin clear. Fast and powerful relief is just a quick trip away. Find Claritin D at the pharmacy counter. Ask for Claritin D at your local pharmacy counter. You don't even need a prescription. Go to Claritin.com right now for a discount so that you can live Claritin clear. Use as directed. You know, some people enjoy composing their own music, chord by chord. And others are happiest when they come across that one perfect song. Work is not a lot different than that. Whether you prefer building your own workflow or using a pre-made template, with Monday.com, you and the team can work in a way that's comfortable for everyone. Tap the banner to go to Monday.com and build your own amazing workflow or find an awesome template. No judgment.
Lindsay disappeared just 30 minutes away from the Emery brothers' home, so police immediately started to think that the two could be linked. There was even a missing persons flyer of Lindsay's inside the Emery's home as well, and this really tipped off investigators. They searched their homes, all 14 acres, tirelessly looking for children and any connection to missing cases in the area, but they didn't find anything substantial to pin them to any particular case, not even Lindsay's. In September 2017, hunters found human skeletal remains in a very remote area in eastern Washington. Police wouldn't release the exact location, but it was over 100 miles or 160 kilometers east of McCleary, and it had many large cliffs and ravines. The remains were sent to an FBI crime lab for DNA analysis, and months later, in May 2018, testing confirmed that they were indeed the remains of 10-year-old Lindsay Baum. It took over eight months to confirm this because they didn't immediately connect to any cases, so it wasn't prioritized over other tests the FBI was working on, and they had no idea that it would be Lindsay. People immediately began searching the area in which she was found to see if they could find any other evidence, but they didn't have any luck, and police spent over 7,500 hours searching the area for clues. So circling back to Dale for a sec, I think it's pretty interesting that he had that four-hour gap in his evening because where her remains were found was about a two-hour drive, and that would only give him about four hours before he picked up that call at 1.11 a.m., Unfortunately, we don't know where his phone pinged when he picked up that 1.11 a.m. call. I think that would really help us. But it was noted in an article that her remains were found west of Ellensburg, Washington. And Ellensburg, Washington is the town where Stephanie, Dale's friend, lived. And it was about two and a half hours east of McCleary, so it wasn't very close. But I just thought it was interesting that Lindsay's remains were found pretty much in between McCleary and Ellensburg. Yeah, I find that to be very suspicious. And the fact that he picked up this phone call at 111, I mean, who's to say he didn't pick up this phone call when he was on his way home from Ellensburg? I mean, we really don't know. So the fact, the fact of the matter is, if it takes two hours to get to Ellensburg and two hours back, well, two and a half hours, I would say. So in total, about five hours. It, that doesn't mean that this 1.11 a.m. phone call puts him in McCleary at 1.11. And Heath and I were talking earlier that we wonder why they spoke at 1.11 a.m. And that it's also interesting that Stephanie said that Dale told her he was working because we all know that Dale was not working at either of his jobs that night and he doesn't have any other alibi. So we were thinking maybe he killed Lindsay and on the way to go see Stephanie at her house in Ellensburg, he dropped Lindsay's remains in the area that he did and then continued on to Ellensburg. And maybe she called him at 1.11 a.m. saying, hey, where are you kind of thing. But Stephanie told police that she hadn't seen Dale since 2002, which was the year that she moved from Washington to Michigan. So apparently when they started talking that day, they didn't see each other for about a month. So about a month after Lindsay disappeared. But that doesn't mean that's true. I mean, maybe that is a lie and maybe he was on his way to her house and that's why he happened upon the spot he did to dump Lindsay's body. 
Right, and I think the fact that he is consistently bringing up Lindsay's case to Stephanie, I think that raises a lot of red flags. And also the fact of the day on June 26, 2009, he apparently had tried to call um, Stephanie about 50 times. And when she didn't answer, he apparently gave up. I mean, that sounds pretty obsessive to call someone 50 times who just gave you their phone number that day and who you haven't talked to in literally years. But I don't know that Stephanie's involved and I'm not saying that she's lying about that evening because maybe he didn't go to her house. I don't necessarily think that she would tell police that he was being obsessive about Lindsay's case if she was involved or if she was trying to cover something up because that would just incriminate him further and then potentially incriminate her. But I definitely think it's an odd connection. Right, it's definitely an odd connection. And also, we do know that a month later, Dale did end up going to Ellensburg and his car actually broke down there. So Stephanie actually had to take him back and she apparently stayed with him in McCleary for about four days after that. Yes, and that was only about three weeks later. And that's actually a really good point because Lindsay's remains weren't found for eight years. So we don't know when they were placed there. So maybe he, if he did commit this crime, it's possible that he had her remains and then left them and that spot on his way to Ellensburg three weeks later. I mean, we just don't know. But I think regardless, that four-hour gap is odd considering we know he wasn't at work. So why else wouldn't he have been on his phone for four hours? Even if he wasn't dumping her body, what else could he have been doing in those four hours if he was connected to her abduction and murder? You know what I mean? Right. And he also told police that he was working that night and then later said that he had come home and then he had passed out at around 9 p.m. So at least that's what I had read in an article. I just think it's so weird that we've caught him lying so many times and the fact that he told police and Stephanie he was working on the night of June 26 when he wasn't. Of course, we can't just pinhole or railroad Dale in this situation because there are other suspects. I think that the handwritten notes about uh, Lindsay Baum from Tim, I think those are very strange and I don't know what they're pertaining to. This could have been after police had contacted him about this case, so I'm not really sure. But right now, I'm really leaning towards Dale being this prime suspect. I agree with you. I do think that there's some other weird things. I think the Emery brothers are super messed up and it's weird that they had her missing persons poster. And I think they're very capable of child abduction and rape and murder. So I would not be surprised if they had anything to do with it. But I know that police did work really hard on these three suspects along with 40 plus other suspects. And unfortunately, no evidence has come from it. To this day, police have not released Lindsay's cause of death either because they want to keep it out of the public knowledge or because they don't quite know themselves yet. It's unknown whether or not Lindsay was sexually assaulted and what condition her body was in when it was discovered. Police went back and interviewed many previous suspects, but they weren't able to uncover any new information. The McCleary Police Department is asking the public to please come forward if they have any information that could help them find the killer. If you know anything about the murder of Lindsay Baum, please call 360-964-1799 or send an email to bombtips at co.grays-harbor.wa.us. Thank you everybody for listening to this episode of Going West. 
Yes, thank you so much, everyone. And we really hope that Melissa, Lindsay's mom, can find some peace and we'll get some justice for Lindsay Baum. If you want to see photos or more information about this case and all of our other cases, check out our Instagram at Going West Podcast or our Twitter at Going West Pod. And join the conversation over on our Facebook page, Going West True Crime. Again, if you want bonus episodes, check out our Patreon, patreon.com slash Going West Podcast. So for everybody out there in the world, don't be a stranger. <laughs>